All right, you guys. Well, thank you for putting together these questions. So there's a lot here, which I'm really grateful for. Hopefully, we'll have some good discussion come out of these, like in past times as well. So after what I'll, we'll basically do is we'll read a question, and then I'll do my best to attempt to provide an answer that's you know based in Scripture. Because one of the things, one of the reasons that we do this is because we want to be reminded that God's word is sufficient, especially in the sense when we're talking about. Uh, spiritual matters, how to live life in a way that is pleasing to God, how to know the gospel. These are things that the Bible is especially sufficient for. We're also grateful for the light of nature in man and the, the truths that God reveals naturally. But a lot of times the questions that we have about life and death and how to honor God, those could only really be answered from his word. And so we'll do our best to answer these questions from what the word says. And if I have an answer. Some of the, if anybody else wants to interject and offer wisdom or insight as well too, you're free to do that. If, um, as we, as we give an answer, if another question comes to your mind in that and you want to ask a question based off of that question before we move on, just put your hand up in the air. There's, it's okay to do that. We want really this to be a time in which the questions that you have get answered because when we, when we preach through a book or we do a topic, you know, those were limited to what the intent is there. So this is the time for when there are things which you have, which haven't been answered, you can bring them up. So with that said, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. And then we'll get to the first question. Our Father, we thank you for this time to consider how it is that we should live and what it is that we should believe about you, about life, about ourselves. And we ask that you would bring to mind your word in our hearts and also in our minds so that we might think rightly about you. Lord, we know that there are many lies that abound in this world and many half-truths, which are, which are not truths at all, which vie for authority. But Lord, we pray that your word would be the authority, especially on spiritual matters and as it extends to every other area of life as well. We don't want to put ourselves above your word, our own thoughts, our own ideas, or somebody else's, God. So we ask that you would humble us and give us wisdom from your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet, is a guide to our path. The commandments of your word are clean, and they endure forever. Uh, the precepts of your word are right. They make the wise, they make the simple wise. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would instruct us through your word and that you would help us to be sanctified, to have our faith increased, that we might glorify you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So again, you know, if, you're, if there are silly, if there are silly questions, since I don't know how many good questions you did, we'll have to do, we'll have to put those to the side and do good questions before we get to silly ones. This is a good question. Do all of the covenants administrate the covenant of grace? Are they, or are they each unique covenants? And then there is, I think I know who wrote this question because of the special language on the bottom that I, that I recognize. This is a good question. So what we want to, for, what I want to say first is that for us as Christians, it's important that we think of the Bible and how God deals with mankind, which is us. Through covenants, through co in different times, in different dispensations, you can say it that way, sure. Um, but
But God is a covenant-making God. We see a number of covenants in the Bible. Uh, even sometimes we see covenants in the Bible in which you don't see the word covenant. Maybe we should say what that is first. A covenant said simply, if you want to think of it in the simplest terms, is an agreement between two parties, two or more parties even. Um, You might think of a marriage as a covenant. You know, a marriage covenant is a vow between a man and a woman to love each other uh, and to not leave each other no matter what is going on in life. And so there are covenants in the Bible. Um, we would say we recognize there to be a covenant in the garden with Adam, although the word covenant doesn't happen there. And then, but we would see also in Hosea 1, I believe, Hosea 1.11, talks about that God made a covenant with man or with Adam. Adam means man. But then um, also with Noah and then with, in, in that's Genesis 7 to 9 where that covenant falls out. And then in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God engages with the covenant language with a man named Abraham. And then in Exodus, uh, we see a covenant with Moses. And then in 1 Samuel, or it might be 2 Samuel, God enters into covenant with David. And then, of course, there's the promised new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then Jesus talks about that new covenant uh, in the gospel accounts, right? Remember when he's up in the upper room, right before he is about to be betrayed, he's setting forth the Lord's Supper as a sacrament or an ordinance for the church to to do. He he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood. Then the new covenant is taught about throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. Now, there's other covenants to be aware of as well. Um, there's what theologians have called the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and then also the covenant of redemption. Covenant of redemption is a covenant that is between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit to redeem people. That's why it's called the covenant of redemption. And so you might, and so the Bible doesn't explicitly mention it, but we see its handiwork there. Like you were chosen, like Ephesians 1, 4, says that people were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Well, chosen in what context? Chosen in the context of a covenant. That God chose them, that Christ would die for them, the Holy Spirit would save them in time, and by applying Christ's righteous life and death to them. Um, Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Well, what's finished? This plan that he had to save people it comes in a covenant. Then there's the covenant of works. That's the covenant that was with Adam in the garden, where God said, basically, do this and live. You could eat of every tree in the garden, but you cannot eat of this tree, the, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you will die. You will bring upon curses on yourself and the land and all your posterity. And of course, you know what happened. Adam didn't do it. He lived. The covenant of grace is the covenant by which anybody who is saved is a part of, in which we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's a covenant in which Jesus did what was required to save us. Okay. Now there's differences. Now the question here, that's just a quick overview. The question here is specific about Protestant theology, and there's a debate among Protestants in this. It says, do all of the covenants administrate the covenant of grace, or are they each unique covenants? So there's what the Presbyterians want to say is that the covenants 
not all the covenants actually, but all of the what we might call the biblical covenants administrate the covenant of grace. What they say specifically is that these covenants are administrations of the covenant of grace. So they'll say the and there's some debate on this. There's no 100 percent monolithic view on this, but even between Presbyterians and Baptists and uh, Lutherans, Lutherans don't really use the same terms, actually, but there's no monolithic view even between Baptists and then Presbyterians and whatever. So Presbyterian view is what this verse is kind of alluding to. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters say that, well, there's actually just two covenants. There's the covenant of works that God made in the garden of Adam, and there's the covenant of grace. And all the other covenants that God made, which would be the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the, um, the Abrahamic covenant uh, before the Davidic and, and Moses, those are all what's called, and, and also actually the new covenant itself as well, are all administrations of this covenant of grace. And what they mean to imply by that is that there is a, a great unity that God has throughout history of mankind in which he blesses people. And so they're careful to say then that people are only saved when they're born again, when they're regenerate, when they are um, true members. And I may, I'm a little confused by this, so maybe I might not be saying this right because I'm not a Presbyterian. Um, they'll say that you're only saved when you're actually in the covenant of grace. If you're not in the covenant of grace, then you're not saved. But even though you might be in these administrations, quote unquote, of the covenant of grace, but those aren't actually the covenant of grace. They're administrations of it. And I might be saying that wrong. The point of the administration is to show unity, that this is how God does this. This is how God, he, he has come to bless people and he does it every time he does it it's a graciousness of god is on display and i wouldn't disagree with the graciousness of god right because god we're not forcing god to enter into a covenant with us right and so nobody would say the presbyterians they wouldn't say that oh well you you're not saved by the abrahamic covenant you're not saved by the mosaic covenant you're saved by the covenant of grace but they, it's confusing at least and so maybe we ask a presbyterian they would have a better answer than i would for that but as a baptist i can tell you what i think is the right answer i would say no all the covenants are not administrations of the covenant of grace that the covenant of grace is unique and there are some presbyterians that believe this as well like john owen he was an especially important pastor and theologian he held to this view as well that they're not administrations of the covenant of grace so all these other covenants they were covenants that god made in time with people that had in them shadows and types that eluded to the theological truths and ramifications that the covenant of grace would bring. And so, and, and behind the scenes, the covenant of grace always existed. So how were people saved in the time of Abraham? Well, how was Abraham saved? Well, by faith, right? It wasn't through his being circumcised. It wasn't through him leaving his parents' land to go to this new land. It was through faith, is what Romans 4 says. And so we would say Abraham was saved by the covenant of grace. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant that God entered into Abraham that was for the intent 
of bringing about the Messiah and blessing the nations. Because he does say to Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. Well, why is that? Not because Abraham was the covenant of grace or administration of the covenant of grace, but because the one who would perform the covenant of grace was going to come through his bloodline. And so the Baptist view then says that the new covenant is the covenant of grace. That's the big distinction. Whereas Presbyterians say all the covenants, including the new covenant, are administrations of the covenant of grace. Baptists historically have said, at least, that the new covenant is the covenant of grace. So therefore, when you are part of the new covenant community, you should only really properly be part of the new covenant if you're actually professing faith in Christ. If you're not professing faith in Christ, or if you're falsely professing faith in Christ, you're really not part of the new covenant because only those who are truly born again are in that covenant. And the the distinction or the helpful thing about this that, that gets confused is like, why do our Presbyterian brothers baptize their babies? And why don't we as Baptists baptize our babies? Well, it's because of covenant theology, really. They view the old, so Bible, especially the New Testament, talks about this thing called the Old Covenant, in contrast to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant. And I think if we're being more careful, it's really the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic Covenant all together. That sums up the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is contrasted to that. Well, in the Old Covenant, you know, you would you would have people that are part of the covenant community with God, yet they weren't actually saved. Right? We've been through that in, in Judges. Right, that some of these people, they were all in the, co- in the covenant with God, but they weren't all actually saved. And so they received the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision that was given to Abraham. So import that same mentality now to the new covenant. Well, we're baptizing your babies, your baby, you're in the new covenant, but that doesn't mean you're actually saved. So that's how Presbyterians would think. And now as a Baptist, we would say that's not that's even kind of because... proper. Go ahead. It didn't, not at all. It pointed to that. And we talked about these things. So in Judges, like even in the Mosaic, the Abraham and the Davidic, you see you have the revelation of prophets, priests, and kings through these, who Christ would fill those offices in his role as the mediator in the covenant of grace. And so two main covenants, we want to affirm that covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Romans 5 talks about that. All in Adam are all in Christ. But the question asks, are all the other covenants administrations of that one covenant of grace, are they each unique covenants? I think the, re- the right answer is that they're each unique covenants. They're absolutely related. It's absolutely gracious of God when he entered into those covenants with, with mankind, but they're not the covenant, they're not the covenant of grace itself. Okay. That's a good question. Sam. <laughs> Congratulations, you took up like two-thirds of the time. And now we're all done. <laughs> okay. We'll try not to be so long. I want to do good for God, but I feel like it's never enough. What can I do about this? Well, first off, it's good that you want to do good for God. Right. Um, what the verse that we read before we sang tonight was out of Romans, which said that you know, only those who 
walk by faith are the sons of God. Those who want to live by the Spirit are sons of God. And so the fact that you want to do what you want to do good for God is a work of God in your life. But the thing to remember is that you'll never be able to do things that are good enough. And so what can you do about this? Well, I think part of us, like there's a, there's a part of us that wants to say, okay, well, I need to read my Bible more. I need to be more faithful to come to church on, you know, Sundays and Wednesdays and Sunday evenings, whatever. I want to, I need to be better at praying. There's part of us that, that wants to go that way. And there's nothing wrong with those things, right? Those are all good things to do. But I think the better thing to do is to, you know, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And to remember that it's you're accepted in Christ, with you're reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. And so what I mean by preach the gospel to yourself is in prayer. And you can do this all throughout the day, really, but especially in the morning, it's good to remind yourself of these things, um, that, that you're a sinner and that you have sinned and your sins are offensive to a holy God, but that also... God and was gracious and kind, and he sent his son to live a holy life and then to uh, go to the cross to die for your sin, and then his holy life is accredited to you, and he rose, and you thank him for those things. You thank God for doing those things because the, because since he did those things and your trust is in him for it, then you can be right with God, not based upon what you've done but based on what he's done. And so that frees you to not like put a burden on yourself, to not even, well, I want to do God, but I feel like it's never enough. Well, it's never enough, but God doesn't expect you to do enough. The covenant of grace is Yeah, the covenant of grace is built on the notion that you can't do enough and you needed someone else and Jesus did it. And so if you remind yourself of that, well, then hopefully you approach like Bible reading and prayer and church attendance and church involvement as a joy that you get to do because you get to learn more about this God who loved you so much that you're accepted because of what Jesus has done. Okay? Good question. J.I. Packer. So, suggested reading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I like that book too. It really dragged for me towards the end, though. I'd say maybe like the first ten chapters, fifty chapters were good. He spends a lot of he he spends a lot of time on adoption. Adoption is a great Christian truth, but it did drag on me. But it's a good book. It's a classic. Knowing God. Any other suggestions? Devotional type books. Reading other Christian books is a good idea too. So, Valley Vision. <laughs> okay. I'll answer this question. I can't tell if it's a joke question. I don't think it is, actually. But I, it says, I dislike Trump, and I am very left in politics. Do you think I'll go to heaven? I don't know. So, how does a person get to heaven? Is it by voting the right way and... By voting in, in American politics? 
It's not, right? But at the same time, <laughs> you have to. Otherwise, you're out. At the same time, I would say, you know, the disliking Trump is different than the very left in politics. So what do you mean by very left in politics? Do you mean that you believe that, you know, babies, women should be allowed to kill their babies? Do you believe that? Yeah, that's not that's not right. So so what you should do if this is a type of well, even if this is just a, a sarcastic question, there are people who are like this that you're going to run into. Right. There are people who are professing to be Christian and they say they hate Trump and they and they're and they're Democrats. Uh, should we trust them as being Christians? And I guess my my advice here would be to see if they know the gospel, if they actually know the gospel. Are they trusting in Christ truly? And it could just be a maturity thing. Maybe they're immature. Maybe they are not. Maybe they don't understand the issues at hand. But I can't see in any way in which a Christian who loves the Lord would actually be in promotion of leftist politics. And when I think of leftist politics, I think of socialism, which is theft, and I think of abortion, which is murder. Right. And so, I mean, God's very clear. Thou shall not murder. Exodus twenty thirteen, I believe. Or in Jeremiah seven thirteen or seven three, he says when he's talking about the um, the people who were sacrificed to Moloch, he says that the thought never even came into his mind for them to do that. So he's speaking anthropomorphically at that point. But how can you promote those things and say you're a Christian? Well, that that'd be like saying, well, I'm a Christian and I believe that you know god is a tree well that doesn't make sense right then you're you're imposing your idea of who god is and what god likes onto the true god and that's not worshiping him so you have to be a case-by-case situation i mean that's my answer but it's a real life question because there are people like that and you would hopefully want to talk to them and show them why that's not right and why even though donald trump was a narcissist and a, a very rash jerk, often, um, he was still a better option than the other options we had. So. And I'm not even interested in, like, what makes, what do you think leftist, leftist politics are? Like, lay down some things that you think you support politically. Some people who are left, who, you know, when we say leftist politics, quote unquote, they're meaning to say like, oh, well, I want to have programs that help the poor and the needy. And so there's an, there could be an intention to do good and right in that, but you have to look at, well, look at how they're doing this. And is that actually the government's job? So there are questions to ask. And again, I think it's a maturity type of issue. This is a good question. How often should I read from my Bible? I don't want to put a law onto you, you know. There's a couple of things to think about in this. Obviously, the more the better, right? This is God's word. We and I'm not saying that I do this. I, I think I watch more TV or I'm on my phone longer than I read the Bible, if I'm being honest. But I mean, obviously, it would be better to read the Bible more often than doing those things. It's this is God's word, and you want to do it in a. You don't want to do it in, in such a sense as which you're just like. 
approaching it like it's a study book or like it's a history book, although it is something that you learn from and it does tell history, but it's literally God's word. It's alive. It's sharper than a you know two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, Hebrews foretells us. So, I mean, the more the better, but at the same time, uh, you don't want it to be a legalistic thing in which you think, oh, if I haven't read my Bible for 30 minutes today, well, then I'm just a horrible Christian. I don't read it from 4.30 to 4.45. That's, that's the danger, right? Some people will think, like, well, I'm going to have a good day today. I got up early. I read my Bible for 30 minutes, and now things are going to go my way. Well, I mean, you probably will hopefully, by the Lord's grace, have your mind more on Christ. And that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that everything's going to go right or you're going to always make the right decision. You're still going to sin that day. It's not, Ozzie, yeah. it's not a good luck charm. It's not a magical inclination. And we have to think of the reality as well, too, you guys, that we are so blessed that we have the Bible this all time. But people for the first, let's say, just the New Covenant time you know from when jesus ascended people didn't have a bible in their hands really until like 1600 1700 and at first it was probably just those who were more wealthy had it but i mean you couldn't you wouldn't have the bible at home in your house you might have maybe a portion of it that you've memorized and written down but you wouldn't have all 66 books with you that didn't happen until the printing press was invented and then you had to learn how to read and so for the vast majority of the life of the church People really only were able to read the Bible or hear the Bible read when they went to church. And so are you, you know, you're not better off. Uh, it's hard to put a law on ourselves when nobody else had it for so long. But again, when you do it, be reverent about it. Pray through it. Pray before it. Pray after. Pray while you're reading it. And don't just look at it as like a, a thing to check off your list. But do it in such a way that you'll, you know, get something out of it. Man, these are... What is the new perspective on Paul? Who did this question? It was you? Okay. That's good. So, I mean, the new perspective of Paul, so, I mean, that's, this, is, this is like a, an abstract thing, but it's a good question. It's a teaching that's popularized by a guy named N.T. Wright. He's a Anglican pastor, scholar, and he is like loved and enamored by a lot of evangelicals, a lot. Like a lot of respectable people, seminary professors look up to N.T. Wright as a gifted gentleman. And he does, he does, you know, communicate well. He's written a lot, but he's got this thing called the New Perspectives on Paul that is essentially heresy. And so basically, to sum it up, try quickly here, he says that the church has, by and large, the evangelical, the Reformed church, has read Paul wrong. So in other words, when we, when we read Paul and we see Paul say, like in Romans 3, when he quotes the Old Testament, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and we, we want to think that Paul was teaching against a works righteousness. He said, no, you're not reading Paul right. He says that Paul actually would want your, essentially your works to be part of your justification. And so he, he changes the gospel in that, in other words. Right. So people have done this sort of thing all throughout history. I mean, Paul writes about it to the Galatians, essentially. Right. Um, 
because they're trying to look to circumcision as part of their right standing before God. Well, anytime we mix our works with the grace of God, then we do away with the grace of God and we do away with the gospel. And so the new perspectives on Paul is just a modern rendition of that. It's more complex than that. I mean, he's got, he's a, he's a scholar. He's written a lot of books. But if you wanted to research it, you can, you know, look up things like uh, the OPC, PCA. I think they've written reports like against it officially. So bad teaching has come, but he's like an evangelical darling. So it's 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 unfortunate, but stay be aware. They might be. I don't know. Keeping his church open. Okay. Um. Maybe we'll stop here. Okay. After this one. But you guys had really good questions. Well, there's no way we'll get through all of these. We can save them. It's the game. It's the game. Okay. Okay. What is what is repentance? Yeah. Asking for forgiveness. Okay. Somebody else put their hand up. It came back down fast. Yeah, repentance is turning from your sins and turning then to Christ. And so there's two ways really to think of Yeah, acknowledge your own. There's two ways really to think of repentance. There's like initial repentance. So when you become a Christian for the first time, you are aware of your sin. You're aware of your offense to God for the first time and you are repentant over that. You're sorry for it. You don't want to do it anymore. And so you repent. Um, you turn from your sin in order to turn to Christ. And then there is continual repentance as well. And so every as you live the Christian life, you're still going to sin. And so you continually repent of that sin when, you, when you're made aware of it. Right? And so what is the Bible says in Romans 2, I think, where it says it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's God's goodness, his kindness towards you that leads you to turning from your sin to do things that are pleasing for the Lord. So it's like a, sometimes I've heard people describe it as like a 180. You know, if you repent, you're going in a direction and you stop and you go in another direction. That's repentance. So if you're thinking of it like from a person who's not a Christian, they're living for themselves, then they repent, they stop, and they are now living for Christ. You're a Christian, you're sinning, you're going in the direction of your sin. You stop that. You ask for forgiveness, and you go in a different. You go in a different direction. You go in a direction that's pleasing to the Lord. And often, you know, you have to repent as a Christian. You repent over the same thing many, many times. Um, what's and that's that could be hard. That could be depressing. Like Lord, why can't I overcome this? Even the Apostle Paul talks about praying to have this thorn in his flesh relieved three times, but he says that God decided to leave it there so that his power would be made uh, manifest in Paul's weakness. But the fact that you want to repent of it is a good thing. I'm concerned about the person who just embraces their sin and doesn't care to repent or justifies it. Oh, well, God won't care. Yeah, right. That's, that's worse. I was no, I said it last one, but then Henry was like, "This is the what we're doing." Do you think he's in charge? Oh, I liked his answer. And a child will be lost. <laughs> All right, one more. 
why didn't God? There's there hasn't really been any jokes. So you guys have done super well. They're in there, huh? <laughs> okay, last question then. Why didn't God create the world in a matter of seconds rather than seven days? There's an E on this. This is actually a, a good question. I mean, you could answer it kind of facetiously and be like, well, it's God. He did what he wants, right? But I think, but that's not the right answer. The right answer would be that he did it to set forth a gospel truth. And that is that we need to rest from our works and look to him and worship him. So, you know, God created everything in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested from his work, not because he was tired, not because he was, you know, out of ideas, but because he wanted to set in place a system of keeping time. I and mean, he created time in creation as well, which is a really weird thing to think about. But in doing so, he gave us the week and that sets forth a theological truth that we would only know from scripture from special revelation that we're supposed to worship God and rest and look to him. And that Sabbath points to the Sabbath rest that we have in Christ, that we, we, we don't have, we rest from trying to be pleasing to God because Christ has done it for us. I just heard something the other day about telling time. That's interesting that um, every culture has weeks. If you think about it, like if every modern culture, especially I don't know, maybe some people in the jungle, maybe they don't, but theoretically they could they could learn what a week is. How would they know what a week is just by observing natural revelation? What happens in a week in seven days time? What was that? Well yeah, those are the those are the seven days. There's, I should say, there's, there's no way that I meant to, I said that wrong. There's no way that we can actually look at nature and see seven days. God established a week for us, but you could tell if you're being observable. How could you tell? If there's such a thing as a month. The moon, right? The, the phases of the moon. You could. How about a year? Seasons. It would be a little bit harder. How about a day? How could you tell there's such a thing as a day? Just by day and night, right? So you could observe all these things in nature. But when it comes to seven days, there's not something that you could observe in that by looking at nature about the cycles of things. Well, even the stars, that wouldn't tell us what a week is because the earth is spinning on its axis going around the sun. And it does one revolution per day and then all you know around the sun 365 days. So. Well, you can see how long to start, but then you have to base that also on years as well. But the point is, there's no, you can't look into nature and see a week. God set forth the week in order to teach a principle about our salvation, that we need to look to him, that, that, that it's all about worshiping him. He's the creator and that we can't obtain salvation by working from it. There's a, a ceasing from works, a rest from works. And our gathering together on the Lord's Day is a picture of that. The, that Sabbath was changed from the last day to the first day. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. He, he's, he did the work that was necessary. And now we live all of life in worship uh, and adoration for who God is.
So that was really a good question. It's interesting to think about. It. There's no you can look at nature, you can see day, month, year, but the week we get that because of who God is and what he taught. Yeah. The sun moving, right? Yeah, 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 you could. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about that too. Not um, theistic evolution or anything crazy like that. Uh, it's interesting though. I think about. It. I mean, just the whole world operates on a week-based system right now. Why? <laughs> Again, it's not something that you see in natural revelation. <laughs> it's a testimony to the reality. Of God, it's it's like it's kind of similar. It's like those things where you see um you people just can't get away from it. Like if I don't know if you saw that politician who's a gay guy, and he had uh, him and his partner had a, adopted a baby, and they're sitting on a a bed in a hospital. Well, like why? You didn't have that baby. You didn't have to be in the hospital to have that. In some way, people can't get away from the reality. Even if you're an atheist and you hate the Lord, you can't get away from God's intended order of things, because He's God, and this is His Whenever world. They pick the baby up from the uh, you're kind, but still, you don't have to take a picture on the hospital bed. Yeah, that's the nonsense. Silly to be on a bed. Good, really good job, you guys. There's a lot of questions here, but I'm excited to get to Revelation. So I don't know when we'll do this. I did not. Let's pray, and then we'll set up for having a. a, a you'll be able to go back and check the recording. So. <laughs> let's pray you guys holy god you are good thank you for this time of discussion we're able to have we ask lord that you would help us to continue to be curious about what your word says and that we would seek to conform our lives to the truths of your word in every area for you are worthy of all praise and adoration in christ's name we pray amen